Well, before we turn to God's word, let us pray together. We bless you, our Father, for the Holy Scriptures that make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word to be a lamp to our feet and to be a light to our path. And as we turn to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding. But more than understanding, Lord, would give us the desire to embrace your truth, to love your truth, to have our lives shaped and styled by your truth. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us. We pray, Lord, that we would truly be Bible Christians, that your word would not be notionally adhered to, but loved and welcomed into our minds and lives. We pray especially for any today who are facing dark and difficult times that they would know the comfort and hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for one another, Lord, in our physical frailties, in our mental frailties, and in our spiritual frailties, that you would look upon us in tender mercy. You see, Lord, the struggles the hopes, the fears, the uncertainties, the disappointments, the delights. There isn't one thing about us that you do not know. And we pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, meet with us this morning. Speak into our lives, Lord. If our hearts have grown cold, warm them, we pray if we have become disinterested and unconcerned, cause your truth to ignite a fire deep within. So, Lord, be with us now, we pray. May your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. And we ask it in our Saviour, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would guess these opening verses in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel are verses that you would know well. They're part of what we call the Christmas story. They recount an incident that resonates with us. No room in the inn. What I want to focus on with you this morning is this truth, that there was something in the manger that was bigger than the whole creation. There was something in the manger that was bigger than the whole creation. We sing about it at Christmas time, low within a manger lies, he who built the starry skies. The Bible doesn't pause to try and explain the inexplicable. How are we intended to make sense of this astonishing disclosure that this helpless bundle of humanity 
built the starry skies. It transcends all our categories of thought. We're not intended to puzzle out how it could be. But we are intended to bow down and to worship. Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. The Bible is very unsettling. If you can read the Bible and not be unsettled, you need to tell me your secret. I don't think there's a day when I rise in the morning and read the word of God that in some way or another I'm not unsettled. Unsettled by being confronted again by the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the infinity, the immensity of who God is. And allied to that, the perplexity of his ways. Remember the words we read in Isaiah 55, your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your ways than my ways and your thoughts than my thoughts. The Christian life is lived out under the canopy of the inexplicableness, the incomprehensibility of God's ways with his people. That's why we're called to live by faith and not by sight. Because often our circumstances seem in opposition to the promises of God. God's ways seem at times tortuous. We can't understand why this has happened or why that's happened. Why I'm going through this and why I'm going through that. And all the while God is saying, behold, you're God. That's why I said in the introduction to the reading that the Bible's big thing is not here is a book that will bring you comfort and hope, though that's true, that's true, but it's not the big thing. The big thing is behold your God, because that's our greatest need, to have expansive views of the greatness the goodness, the glory, the eternality of the God who in Jesus Christ is for us and not against us. There was something in the manger that was bigger than the whole creation. I want to notice four things with you in these few verses. Four things that God tells us about himself. Because the passage is about God. And the first and obvious thing, what I was saying, speaking to the children about, is this. Here we see the God who keeps his promises. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. In the wake of Adam's sin in the garden, God confronts Satan in the guise of the serpent and says to him, I'm going to bring forth one from the seed of the woman whom you have just deceived. I'm going to bring forth someone from the seed of the woman who will crush your head. You will strike at his heel. You will do damage to him, but he will crush your head. 
God is announcing the first great gospel promise. The first gospel sermon in the Bible is preached by God himself. And you could imagine how this promise as it would be passed down from family to family, generation to generation, people would be asking themselves, when will this serpent crusher come? How will we know him? You could imagine people thinking, well, he must be glorious and great and majestic if he's going to confront and overcome the enemy. And the years pass. And the decades pass and the centuries pass. And there are false dawns. I mentioned Noah. His name means rest in Hebrew. Noah. Is he the one who will give us rest? Who will bring hope into our lives? No, not Noah. Well, what about Abraham? Called the friend of God. Great Abraham. Not Abraham. He failed. He flattered to deceive. And you could go down, couldn't you, through, through the various kings and the prophets, these Great ones raised up by God. And then there came David. The man after God's own heart. Only to become an adulterer. And a conspirator in murder. And it seemed at times that God had forgotten his promise. But God not only makes promises, he keeps promises. He's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And here, in the birth narratives, God is saying to us, I keep my promises. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world is the fulfillment of, of the promise in Genesis 3.15. Indeed, the whole Bible is really an escalating, unfolding exposition of Genesis 3.15. The whole Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. He will crush the serpent's head. He did so, as we'll see, by his coming, by his living, by his cross, by his resurrection, he spoiled principalities and powers. And when he comes again to consummate history, to make a new heavens and a new earth, Satan and all who are his will be cast into the lake of fire and he will be finally, eternally and irrevocably crushed by the Son of God. And so here in the context we see the God who, who keeps his promises. But then secondly, and more particularly to the, to the text here, we see the God who acts sovereignly. The text is so matter of fact. The Bible is very, I said, unsettling and disconcerting. The Bible rarely pauses to say, now are you getting it? Are you getting it? Do you see how majestic and sovereign God is in control of all things? The Bible trundles on. 
So you read in chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Joseph goes up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. It all seems as though this great world superpower, with the emperor Caesar Augustus at its helm, is ruling and reigning over all the circumstances of life. And poor Joseph has to travel the 90 or so miles. I've done it many times. I spent two months as a student in Israel, traveling from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. But actually, it's not Caesar Augustus who's pulling the strings, who's ordaining the events. You remember back in the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, Isn't it chapter 5, verse 2, where the Lord through Micah says to his people at a time when they are facing exile and judgment and condemnation, God says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are the least of the clans of Judah, from you will come forth one whose origins are from everlasting. God had decreed That Bethlehem would be the place where the eternal God would come into the brokenness, the fallenness, the misery, the darkness and the death of his world. It's not Caesar Augustus who is ordering and ordaining. It's the Lord God himself who sovereignly is overruling all the events. Now we see that, don't we, not just in the birth, but in the cross, especially. Remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2. He says, you, you with wicked hands, took him, the Prince of Life, the Lord of Glory, you nailed him to a tree, you did it. You conspired against him. You sought to kill him. But, he says, all was according to the foreknowledge and predestinating purpose of Almighty God. You were acting, yes, freely. You were responsible for your actions, but mysteriously and gloriously, overarching over all things was the predestinating sovereignty of Almighty God. Octavius Winslow was a late 19th century vicar. He said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not the Jews for envy. Not Pilate for fear. But the Father for love. Judas did conspire to hand him over. The Jews did conspire to kill him. Pilate conceded and connived in the wickedness, but behind it all, underneath it all, overarching all, it was the Father who spared not his only Son, but who delivered him up for us all. 
Here is God orchestrating events according to his decree. You, Bethlehem, insignificant. Don't know if you've been to Bethlehem. It's literally a one-horse town. You're going to be the place that will see the coming into the world of the one whose origins are from everlasting. Now, for some people, sadly, the sovereignty of God, the predestinating purposes of God, cause them confusion and puzzlement. But you see, God doesn't expect us to understand. He expects us to believe. His ways are higher than our ways. The sovereignty of God is not presented to us in the Bible as a conundrum to solve, as a theological puzzle to unravel. Who has known the mind of the Lord, wrote Paul in Romans 11? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. The sovereignty of God is presented to us as a comfort, not as a conundrum. As a pillow to rest our weary heads on. We're not asked to reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They're two truths. We're to proclaim them for what they are. Why are you here this morning? Oh, you say, well, Ian, that's a bit of a no-brainer. I'm here because I got up, I had my breakfast, if you had breakfast, made my way here, and here I am. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I'm here actually because my mum and dad said I needed to be here. And they wouldn't let me just lie in my bed on a Sunday morning. Whatever reason you think you have, I want to tell you why you're here. You are here because Almighty God decreed in times eternal you would be here in this place at this moment to hear this man tell you that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he's the saviour given by God to rescue us and to bring us safely from this life into the life which is to come. You are here for that reason. You may be here reluctantly. You may be here eagerly. You may be thinking, oh, I'm longing for the Lord's Day morning to come. Or maybe you are thinking, oh dear, Sunday again. Here we go. But you are here because... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ decreed it, determined it, that you and I might once again hear the good news. That's what gospel means, good news. That God has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. So the verses point us to the God who keeps his promises, to the God who acts sovereignly, Thirdly, to the God who acts unexpectedly. Genesis 3.15. I'm going to bring forth a serpent crusher, a Satan destroyer. Can you imagine 
what people must have thought as the years passed. He must be powerful. He must be a glorious being if he's going to deal with the serpent. And in a little one-horse town, it's not even a town, in a largish village called Bethlehem, least amongst the clans of Judah, God brings into the world his serpent crusher. It's also incongruous. The Bible's like that. It turns the values of our thinking upside down, doesn't it? In the book of Isaiah, prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, we're, we're told that the promised one would be called mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of his kingdom there will be no end. It's, it's a magnificent statement. And Bethlehem? A stable? A manger? Swaddling cloths? Are you serious? Are you serious? How unexpectedly God works in this world. He turns the values, the thinking of our world upside down. Why, why does the Lord of glory come so incongruously, so humbly, so self-effacingly, so obscurely into this world? Hardly anyone knew what was going on. Simeon in the temple, Anna in the temple. Some shepherds were told. A few angels came and sang. And three, possibly three mysterious strangers from who knows where in the east appeared. Nobody else had a clue that the Lord of glory, the creator of the cosmos, had entered his world, his glory veiled. Why so incongruous? Why no trumpets, no fanfares? Well, we could spend, hopefully profitably, the rest of the day pondering that. But here's one thing to think about. He enters this world that he might stand among us in our fallenness, in our weakness, in our need, as one who has identified with us. Who has a humanity like unto our humanity. Who didn't come into the world as a superman. Otherwise he couldn't save us. If his humanity wasn't real, wasn't genuine. He couldn't stand before God in our place. And give to him what we could never give to him. He comes and identifies with the weak, the poor the lowly, the dispossessed, the marginalized. I know by experience what it is to be human. He knows our frame. Remember those great words in 103rd Psalm? He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are dust because he's dust himself. There's dust on the throne of heaven. Glorified dust 
It's astonishing. He knows our frame. He knows weakness from experience. He knows rejection. He knows pain. He knows suffering. He's able to help us. He's able to help us. The God who acts unexpectedly. No fanfare. No palaces. No drama. The God who keeps his promises. The God who acts sovereignly. The God who acts unexpectedly. And then fourthly, finally, the God who experiences rejection. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because... There was no place for them in the inn. Now, it almost certainly wasn't a stable. And there were certainly no donkeys or anything like that. In those days, the animals would live and exist on the lower floor and people would live above it. There was no room. And that's a note that Luke is going to run with throughout his gospel. The note of rejection. It looks equivalent to the first chapter of John, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own received him not. The serpent crusher has come into the world. The Son of God has become flesh to stand before God in our place, giving him the righteous life we could never give, and dying the sin-atoning death we could never die. And he experiences rejection right at the outset. It's a very moving note, isn't it? But it's actually a very wonderfully comforting and reassuring note. Here is a saviour who knows by experience the rejection of this world. who understands our humanity from within. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, let us then, is it end of chapter 4, let us come with boldness to the throne of grace because there we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who understands the frailty and the fragility of our humanity and our faith from within. He experienced rejection here. His disciples eventually abandoned him. Peter denied him. Judas sold him. Here is a God who doesn't deal with us merely by observation, but out of the felt experiences of God the Son who became flesh for us and for our salvation. I don't know in what mental or physical or spiritual condition you have come to this place this morning. But whatever your condition, he is able to help you. 
He knows your frame. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows humanity from within. And whoever you are, whatever your history, your condition, your background, there is a Savior who is not only a friend of sinners, but who came into this world, and Paul puts it very boldly in Romans 8, verse 3, I think, who came into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't take sinful flesh. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But he so identified with us that when people looked at Jesus, he just looked like anybody else. But to some, God opened their eyes. And they could say this, he looks like everybody else, but he is infinitely greater than everyone else. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Mary lays him in a manger because there was no place For them, notice that, not just him, no place for them in the end. Don't have time to run with that. But when you belong to Jesus Christ, when you're identified with Jesus Christ, the Bible never hides from you the cost of belonging to a rejected Savior. In fact, Jesus would later say to his disciples, wouldn't he, If they hated me, they will hate you also. But he triumphed. And all who belong to him, who have come to him by faith, tremblingly. You know, it's it's not great faith that saves anyone. It's just faith. Weak, trembling, Halting faith. In fact, it's not faith that saves you anyway. Faith won't take you anywhere. It's Jesus Christ who saves. And faith unites you to the Savior. That's why the New Testament is very careful never to say that we are saved by faith. Never, never, never once. We are saved through faith. We're saved by Christ. He is our salvation. So, the God who keeps his promises, the God who acts sovereignly, the God who acts unexpectedly, and the God who has experienced rejection. Who is like unto you, O Lord? So you see, the Bible is first and foremost about who he is 
And that's why our greatest need in life is to have our minds and hearts captivated by the greatness, the wonder, the glory, the majesty, the power, the grace, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, and the magnificence of the Father who loved us of the Son who died for us, and of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Jesus Christ. May God bless to us his word this morning. Well, our closing praise is in Sing Psalms 118, and we'll sing verses 17 to 24. I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord's great works I will proclaim. I shall not die, but I shall live. of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lift up your heads and by faith receive the blessing of the triune God. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Amen.